personal testimony can be a very powerful tool in the Lord's hands. The Apostle Paul shared his testimony more than once in the book of Acts with great impact. In a testimony, uh, people describe the events surrounding their conversion. That's exactly what the Apostle uh, Paul did. Uh, he was converted to Christ, as we read in Acts chapter 9, and the dramatic encounter he had with Christ. And later on, he would relate that experience in a number of different situations. Now, testimony, of course, is not the gospel. Of course, that's the case. The, the gospel is about the news of what God has done in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It relates to Christ and his coming into this world, the second person of the Trinity, uh, God, the Son, God, the Word, was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And the testimony is that Christ lived a perfect life, died an atoning death on the cross and rose again from the dead. All of these are aspects of that good news. And then it relates to us as how we receive the benefits of the cross of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. We know this based on the sure testimony of Scripture alone. What a great foundation the Scripture gives us. So testimony is not the gospel, but the Lord can use testimony. It's the gospel that is the power of God, not our testimony. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. We read in Romans 10.17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing the message of Christ, hearing the word of God. I'd like in this uh, brief time to share something of a testimony concerning my coming into what is called uh, Reformed theology. Now, as a Christian, my desire is to believe the Bible. Why would I want to label something as Reformed theology? Well, I'd like to explain that. C.H. Spurgeon once said that Reformed theology is nothing other than biblical Christianity. I can testify since my conversion to Christ at the age of 14, I've always wanted to embrace what the Bible teaches. I trust that's true of you. Now, when we talk about Reformed theology, there's a subsection of that. Reformed theology is the, the big picture idea. We'll talk about what that means. And underneath that is something called the doctrines of grace, or what is commonly called Calvinism. It's actually very unfortunate that a man's name is associated with the doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So, Protestant Reformation. That is the time when God raised up men like Martin Luther and uh, others in different nations. In the English-speaking English world, it was Tyndale. In the German-speaking world, it was Luther. We could go on, on, on and on and talk about the Protestant Reformation. Reformed theology described, describes the, the teaching that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And unfortunately, we're kind of stuck with the name of Calvinism as it relates to the 
doctrines of grace. There's five doctrines in the doctrines of grace, and it's certainly not all that needs to be said or is being said by the term Reformed theology, but it is a part of it. Calvin was not the first to articulate these truths, so how come Calvinism is a name we're stuck with? Well, he was the chief systematizer of the doctrines of the Reformation. He put them in a system. He organized something uh, of a systematic theology where you go verse by verse through the Bible looking at different themes. And he was instrumental in the Reformation. Let me explain why. At the tender age of 26, as uh, a, a young man, he wrote the first edition of what is called Calvin's Institutes or his Institutes of the Christian religion. It was revived, it re revised over time, uh, several editions over time. He added to his first work, but at the age of 26, he put out the first of his editions of Calvin's Institutes, as we call them. And this was historic in the sense that this was the first time the doctrines of the Reformation were put in a systematic way on paper. He organized with his great mind a whole section on who God is, on salvation, on the coming of Christ, on the Holy Spirit, and on and on we could go. And so popular was this book of his that rather than saying to people, do you believe uh, the, the, the contents of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, this very, very popular book, it became just slang almost to say, are you a Calvinist? And people understood at that time what that meant. Do you embrace Calvin's Institute, at least the content of, those, uh, of that work? Do you embrace the doctrines formulated in the Reformation? Now, in the same way, in our day, we say in a very short word or phrase, uh, Trinity, or we ask the question, are you Trinitarian? And in just a few words, we've asked the question, do you believe that the Scripture teaches there is one God who is three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Now, that's a long sentence. And so it's very easy or easier to ask the question, are you Trinitarian? Your church pastor should be able to say yes if he's ever asked, is this church Trinitarian? Or, or otherwise, you've got a false God. So rather than saying, do you believe these concepts? There is one God. Uh, there are three persons who are called God in Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons are not the same person. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Father, and so on. Now, that's a very, very long sentence, but it summed up the question of uh, Orthodox Christianity, are you Trinitarian? In the same way, back in history, people would ask others, are you a Calvinist? Now, Calvin wasn't the first to articulate these truths, but he was the chief systematizer of those doctrines. There was actually nothing in Calvin that wasn't first seen in Luther, 
Uh, much of Luther was first found in uh, Augustine. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk, of course, and we'd naturally affirm that there was nothing in any of these men that was not first found in the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and John in the New Testament, and even Jesus. Now, even now, I have no desire to be a Calvinist in the Corinthian sense of the word. Do you know what I mean by that? In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul outlined the fact that in Corinth there were various sections of the church where one would say, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. And these were not things to be proud about, that people would say, I only follow what Paul says. It's interesting, Paul writes that. Paul didn't want to make followers of Paul. I'm absolutely certain Calvin would never want people to be followers of him. Uh, actually, as you read John Calvin and you read his sermons, he was amazingly self-effacing. It's very, very hard, if not impossible, to find a personal story in his sermons. The reason we know about his conversion are not, uh, and events in his life are, are not found, they're not found uh, in his sermons. They're found in some of his letters as he wrote to uh, people who were about to be martyred in France, for example. We, we learn of his conversion there rather than uh, sermon number 63 of some biblical book. He did not talk about himself. I've actually been to Geneva, Switzerland, where John Calvin pastored. And uh, you can have a tour of the Reformation there, of course, but you'll never find his grave because at his request... He asked that he be buried in an unmarked grave. He didn't want people to be adulating him or doing any kind of hocus-pocus over his grave. So no one knows where he is buried, though we know he is buried in Geneva somewhere. Now, I want to say this too. To my knowledge, I've actually never met a follower of John Calvin. And that's often what is assumed when someone says, you're a Calvinist. You're a follower of John Calvin, of course. N no, I've never actually met one of those. I, I actually believe Calvin was a tremendous expositor of the scriptures, tremendous teacher, drawing out from the text what's in the text. He, he had many huge, great insights, but I am not someone who believes he was in any way infallible. I'm with C.H. Spurgeon, who declared this. Let me quote him. There is no soul living who holds more firmly to the doctrines of grace than I do. And if any man asks me whether I'm ashamed to be called a Calvinist, I answer, I wish to be called nothing but a Christian. But if you ask me, do I hold the doctrinal views which were held by John Calvin? I reply, I do in the main hold them and rejoice to avow it. You'll find that quote in uh, a sermon, A Defense of Calvinism. Elsewhere, Spurgeon said this, I believe nothing merely because Calvin taught it, but because I've found his teaching in the Word of God. I, I can say amen to that. Now, speaking personally and coming to understand these doctrines that are now very precious to me, I realized there were fortresses built into my mind to defend against the idea of God being sovereign in the matter of salvation. I was 
badly taught as a young Christian. Um, but that was my depravity in terms of the fortresses in my mind. Uh, these fortresses were not made of stone and brick, but man-made ideas, concepts, I believe scripture taught with clarity. And those fortresses did not come down easily. In fact, I believe it's a work of divine grace in the heart, not only to regenerate his people, but also to open hearts and minds, even of his own people, to the truth of his sovereignty in salvation. Let me give you a couple of uh, quotes from C.H. Spurgeon. I think I've already given you a couple. Here's a couple more. He once wrote this, I, we believe in the five great points commonly known as Calvinistic, but we do not regard these five points as being barbed, B-A-R-B-E-D, barbed shafts, which we are to thrust between the ribs, uh, the ribs of our fellow Christians. We look upon them as being five great lamps, which help to irradiate the cross, or rather five bright emanations springing from the glorious covenant of our triune God and illustrating the great doctrine of Jesus crucified. Elsewhere, he wrote this, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. Let me just stop there for a moment. Don't believe he's saying that only Calvinists preach the gospel. He's talking about preaching the gospel with complete accuracy. I believe that's what he's saying there. That, that is his heart. Uh, there's no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified, I would say, with accuracy, unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. He goes on, it's a nickname to call it Calvinism, Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people, which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend the gospel, which allows saints to fall away after they are called. End of quote. Do you see why I inserted my little insert there? Uh, accuracy. He, he explains his big comment about Calvinism by uh, Calvinism being the gospel by uh, the perfect or at least uh, in human terms, the accuracy of the gospel. Uh, if you preach a gospel that tells folk uh, you're in today but you're out tomorrow, you've not really relayed the gospel properly. And that's, I believe, what he's talking about. There's tremendous unity in Christ. These are not things actually to divide over. Again, I found a number of quotes I wanted to include in this. And this is another one from Spurgeon. We give our hand to every man that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what he may or who he may. The doctrine of election, like the great act of election itself, is intended to divide, not between Israel and Israel, but between Israel and the Egyptians. 
not between saint and saint, but between saints and the children of the world. A man may be evidently of God's chosen family, and yet, though elected, may not believe in the doctrine of election. I hold that there are many savingly called who do not believe in effectual calling, and that there are a great many who persevere to the end who do not believe the doctrine of final perseverance. We do hope the hearts of many are a great deal better than their heads. We do not set their fallacies down to any willful opposition to the truth, as it is in Jesus, but simply to an error in their judgments, which we pray God to correct. We hope that if they think us mistaken too, they will reciprocate the same Christian courtesy. And when we meet around the cross, we hope that we shall ever feel that we are one in Christ Jesus. End of quote. In my own journey, converted at the age of 14, I was certainly changed by my conversion to Christ. I wanted to be a soccer player, and the moment I was converted, I really wanted to be a preacher. Where did that come from? Well, I believe the Lord did something in my heart and dropped a gift in my heart to be able to speak to people, because before that I could not. Fast forward to November of the year 2000, and I was, after graduating uh, Bible Seminary, Bible College in England, I had been pastoring since uh, 1987, so this was 13 and a half years later, after graduating from Bible College, I was a pastor of a church, I think around 300 people, I had uh, very much a desire to be biblical, thought I was biblical and was a pastor in ministry. I'd been in ministry since uh, the finishing those theological training years and then I was fairly confident that my knowledge of the word was sound. That's the point. I was serving as a pastor of a church in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, I received a flyer in the mail and I still have it from Ligonier Ministries informing me that Dr. R.C. Sproul was coming to do a Friday night and Saturday morning teaching in Scottsdale, Arizona. That was only a short distance from my home in Phoenix. Now, up until then, I'd not heard Dr. Sproul in person, but I was greatly impacted by his teaching videos on the holiness of God some years before. I'd gone through that series, very impressed by him. Now, as I looked further at the flyer, my heart sank when I saw the subject he was going to be focusing on. Here it is. Here it was. Chosen by God, the biblical doctrines of election and predestination. Honestly, I thought, how silly that a man of that caliber would spend his energies articulating an idea that's so way past its sell-by date. I was in two minds as to whether to go or not. I wanted to hear Dr. Sproul in person, but not on that subject. Any other subject would have been better as far as I was concerned. And I thought, why would someone like him fly all the way from Florida to Arizona, which in European terms is like seven or eight nations, countries, to talk about this idea? Haven't we got over this? 
predestination. This is the year 2000. It's a new millennium. Come on, get over it. And yet I wanted to hear him. So was I going to go? I didn't know. Well, I finally decided to go. But I sat on the back row uh, of the conference. So if it became obvious that Dr. Sproul was just espousing his religious traditions, he was just quoting people in church history, he couldn't relate what he was saying from scripture. If that was the case, I could leave quietly and quickly without interrupting people around me. That was how I entered the conference. I was really more than prepared to leave at any point. It could be a short visit, but I was prepared for that. Well, I stayed for the first session and he wasn't quoting the theologians. He was going to scripture and I thought, well, yeah, he, he's got a point there. I can't fault what he's saying, but I've got my scriptures. I've got many scriptures that would refute the conclusions he's coming to. However, I was intrigued that there was nothing in what I heard that could be easily dismissed. Then, as the Friday night continued, there was this promise that there would be a question and answer session in the morning on the Saturday. And that was, that's what brought me back. I thought, that's when we're going to see the wheels come off Dr. Sproul's wagon. <laughs> Little did I know. Well, it proved to be invaluable for me, this question and answer session, because many of the questions I had were raised, and I had to admit, were answered from Scripture in their proper biblical context. He was going to scriptures that I knew I could quote in my sleep, I think. I think most Christians could. John 3.16, and he says, now, uh, this is what we read into it, but it's not actually there in the text. This is what the text actually says. Now, as I was hearing this, in a couple of minutes, just on that verse, and then other verses he was questioned about, I was alarmed, I have to admit greatly alarmed, I realized I was in trouble because in his answers, he was exposing my traditions. He really was. If you could have seen me, my face would have been white as a sheet because it was as if the blood was draining from my face. I was not enjoying this experience. Here I was, a pastor, thinking I knew my Bible well, and he was actually showing me the shallowness of what I believed. It was not a nice thing. Now, I came to understand this whole issue required a lot more research than I thought it did. Now, I left the conference impacted, but still unconvinced because I had a number of huge fortresses in my mind. But I was bothered, I was bothered enormously that I had heard no scripture taken out of its context. And being honest with myself, I had to admit that it was my assumptions about certain texts that were guilty of that exact charge. Well, knowing I needed to believe what the scripture taught on the subject, I ordered much material and began my research. Now, it's never pleasant to examine our firmly held traditions. And I felt that this was especially so in my position when I taught other things at various times in my ministry. No one wants to admit the possibility that they might, in fact, be wrong. Well, it took 
six to nine months, probably even more than a year before I was absolutely convinced. And again, that's down to my depravity. <laughs> but I researched in depth, and then I realized in my studies that there was a consistent and clear biblical doctrine of election and predestination. It was clear in the Bible. I also came to see that in order for me to believe what the Bible taught in this area, I had to dispense with my traditional understanding. And I was as surprised as anyone to emerge from this self-imposed theological study cocoon, as I call it, fully reformed concerning the doctrines of salvation. Yet, that's exactly what happened. What are those doctrines? Well, they can be summarized as followed, uh, as follows. Um, the first, you've heard the acronym TULIP, I'm sure. Uh, T-U-L-I-P. T stands for total depravity. U stands for unconditional election. L, limited atonement. Uh, I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. I don't particularly like those terms. They need a lot of explanation. Uh, in my book, uh, what, uh, 12 Whatabouts, uh, I describe the five doctrines this way. R as radical corruption. That destroys the tulip straight away, doesn't it? Radical corruption. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The doctrine is this, sinners are completely helpless to redeem themselves or to contribute anything meritorious toward their own salvation. Because of the fall of man, the sinner is not morally neutral, but actually hostile towards God. He is, in fact, the sworn enemy of God. He's spiritually dead and therefore blind and deaf to the things of God. His will is not free. It's in bondage to his evil nature Therefore, he will not. Indeed, he cannot choose good over evil. Therefore, it takes much more than the Holy Spirit's assistance and wooing to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes a radical regeneration by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of, uh, a heart of stone. Faith is the evidence of the new birth not the cause of it. Since both repentance and faith are possible only because of the regenerating work of God, both are called the gift of God. That's radical corruption. Second, unconditional election. There's no need to alter the historic acronym there, unconditional election. Romans 9.11 says it this way, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Do you see that? Not because of works. Uh, election is never on the basis of human activity, either foreseen or happening in time. It's not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's unconditional. Here's what I write here on... Uh, this topic, God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in his own sovereign will, not being based on any foreseen response 
or obedience on man's part, such as repentance, faith, etc. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. These acts are the result, not the cause, of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. God brings his elect through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. The third doctrine in these doctrines of grace is particular redemption. Matthew 1.21, the angel said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I write this, the death of the Son of God. Actually, I'm quoting from the Canons of Dort, the second head of doctrines, uh, second head of doctrine, Articles 3 and 4. The death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. This death is of such infinite value and dignity because the person who submitted to it was not only really man and perfectly holy, but also the only begotten Son of God of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, which qualifications were necessary to constitute him a savior for us, and moreover, because it was attended with a sense of the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. End of quote. Again, that's from the Canons of Dort. Here's what I write. The doctrine of particular redemption speaks of God's design in the atonement and who it was he was intending to save when Christ went to the cross. Christ died as a substitute who bore the full weight of God's wrath on behalf of his people, paying the penalty for their sin. Christ intended to save his sheep and actually secured everything necessary for their salvation. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all for whom Christ died thereby guaranteeing their salvation. The fourth of these doctrines is effectual calling. Romans 8 verse 30, Those whom he called, he also justified. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected, whereas the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special effectual call, the Holy Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He is not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success, the Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ.
the last of these doctrines, preservation of the saints. Romans 8 verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's saving purpose cannot be thwarted. None of Christ's true sheep will ever be lost, though the elect may for a time fall into radical sin, such as Peter's denial of Christ, God restores them to fellowship with himself and assures their eternal salvation. This salvation involves the work of the Trinity. All who are chosen by God the Father, redeemed by Christ the Son, and given faith by the Holy Spirit are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. They persevere in faith because He preserves them. Now, in coming to understand these doctrines and to understand they are biblical doctrines, I look back and see the whole thing, that the desire to even study these things and examine firmly held beliefs as a work of God. I've found many don't wish to do that. Even the ability to see the truth of this is the work of God's grace in my life. How, how gracious it is that God opened my eyes to these things. I'm so thankful. Praise the Lord. C.H. Spurgeon, again, another quote I found I wanted to include in this. He once said this, the doctrines of original sin, election, effectual calling, final perseverance, and all those great truths which are called Calvinism, though Calvin was not the author of them, but simply an able writer and preacher upon the subject, are, I believe, the essential doctrines of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. Now, I do not ask whether you believe all this. It is possible you may not, but I believe you will before you enter heaven. I'm persuaded that as God may have washed your hearts, he will wash your brains before you enter heaven. That, that's typical Spurgeon. Great truth with humor mixed in. He's going to wash our brains before we enter heaven. When I came to understand these things, it wasn't because I saw a verse somewhere. Obviously, I did see a verse somewhere, but it was more than that. I saw that these were not just teachings that you could find in passages like Romans 8, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, John 6, John 1, which again talks about the fact that you're born again, not by the will of man, but of God. All of that, John chapter 1, 12 and 13, John 8, 47, John 10, 26 and 27. We could go on and on and on. But that's not the point. The point was, once you see it, you kind of see it everywhere. Once you understand that these are the teachings of the Bible, you see these things in the Bible and it's as if, you're reading your Bible now with spectacles on, glasses on, that allows you to see what was all the way and all the time there in the text. You read through Genesis and you think, wow, Moses was a Calvinist. Well, of course, that's an anachronism. Calvinism is a term that came so much later in history, but you find in the call of Abraham. God at work. Abraham was an idolater. 
and he was called out of that darkness to become the founder of a new nation, which later became known as Israel. Abraham wasn't seeking God. God sought him. Israel wasn't a nation seeking God. <laughs> but God formed the nation. Uh, let me just read Deuteronomy chapter 7 for a moment. Deuteronomy 7. God had the availability of all the nations around, but chose Israel. Deuteronomy 7. Look at verse 6 with me. Just three verses, 6 through 8. Talking to Israel, God says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. My commentary here is he had a lot of choices, but he chose Israel to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Wow. God called Israel, and we see that. He's made it clear there. The chosen people, they were not, and he made them. I, I said that as you read through your Bible, you begin to see things you, that were always there in the text, but you couldn't see them before. I remember just one example of that in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. And you think, well, I don't remember Psalm 1 being something about God's sovereignty and salvation. Well, let's, let's read Psalm 1, familiar words. Familiar words, surely. We read these words, Blessed is the man who does not, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Look at verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, where's sovereignty in that? Well, think about it. God describes the blessed man as someone who does not do some things, but now does do other things. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. But in contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. And then it says, he's like a tree planted. And it dawned on me, as I asked questions of the text, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And I imagined going to a store where they sell trees, picking out a tree, taking the tree home and planting it. 
A lot of people do that. But here's the point. Trees don't plant themselves. That's activity, not by the tree, but by the tree planter. There's a tree planter that's silent in the text, but he's there. You see someone who's the blessed man, and the description fits of verses 1 and 2. That man is a tree planted by streams of water. It's the tree he wants, the tree of his choosing, in the place he wants, the place of his choosing. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. That's sovereignty. Now I want to wrap this up, this brief testimony, by uh, describing some of the books that impacted me in my research. One was, of course, Dr. R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God. I went to the conference under that theme and read the book. Greatly impactful. His book, Willing to Believe, uh, which went into the controversy concerning free will. That was immensely helpful. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, his books, two of them, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, which articulates the five solas of the Reformation, immensely helpful to me in my journey. And then a book uh, of his called The Doctrines of Grace. Interesting story with that. Uh, that impacted me enormously. Uh, the story was that uh, Dr. Boyce uh, was given bad news regarding his health, that he had a brain tumor, and the news would be that it's an aggressive form, and he'd be actually dying within a few months. And I thought to myself, what would I do if I was given just months to live? What would I do with my time? Well, this is what Dr. Boyce did. He set about writing that book, The Doctrines of Grace. Uh, he wanted to make sure that's a legacy he left behind. You know, when you know you've got just a few months to live, life comes into true perspective. And though he had written on many other themes and had written commentaries on various books of the Bible, he wanted his last months to count. Well, he didn't quite finish the material uh, before his death but he'd written a whole host of uh, notes and had uh, written a great percentage of it, but he hadn't quite finished it. And so there was another man called Philip Ryken who put those notes together and uh, completed the task. And so if you see the book, The Doctrines of Grace, not only is the author James Montgomery Boyce, but a man called Philip Ryken. Fast forward to about the year 2003, 2004, I was sitting at a Reformed conference in Phoenix. At the conference, everyone's got name tags on, and I noticed the man sitting next to me had the name Philip Ryken. And I thought, this is a Reformed conference, this is Philip Ryken. Is this the Philip Ryken who finished that book that so greatly impacted me? And so before he left that session, I said, excuse me, I don't want to bother you, but are you the Philip Ryken that finished Dr. James Montgomery Boyce's book? He says, oh, yes. I said, oh, you have no idea how much that impacted me. Well, it impacted me. Well, his, his face lit up, and I told him something of my story in just a minute or so. 
And he was just so thrilled. And I asked him, how much of that book was you and how much was Dr. James Montgomery Boyce? He said, basically, it's all his book. I simply put his notes together and uh, knowing his, his desires, he, he spoke to me about what he wanted for the conclusion of certain chapters, but I had his notes and I was simply the one who put it all together. It's uh, Dr. Boyce's book. And he was just so thrilled that his work had uh, really impacted me, and it had. That's just another side story. Praise the Lord. Another book that was, um, in, uh, in fact, very helpful was Drawn by the Father by Dr. Dr. James White. Certainly, <clears throat> after I'd come, or certainly along the way, it was immensely helpful, again, to read his other book, The Potter's Freedom. I recommend all of these books very, very highly. I'd recommend two, uh, two books by Steve Lawson, Foundations of Grace, which tackles these five doctrines of grace right through the Bible. So beginning with Moses and ending with the Apostle John. Moses in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through to the book of Revelation. He goes uh, verse by verse through the doctrines of grace as they're found in the Bible. Virt virtually every text in the Bible under those five headings of the doctrines of grace. It's a marvelous book. It's unique in that sense. Normally books uh, dis describe the doctrines and then you go to various different scriptures. This is going through the Bible, uh, outlining the verses that scream those five doctrines and certainly articulate them. Another book that was helpful uh, that's come out in recent years is Pillars of Grace. And this is really, again, by Steve Lawson. And that's articulating those doctrines taught in church history. And he goes through 23 key men in church history that affirmed uh, these doctrines of grace, beginning with Clement of Rome, uh, on through Augustine and certain others, 23 men and their uh, quotes and their teachings regarding these doctrines of grace. Well, that's something of my testimony. I trust it's an encouragement to you and could be of help in your journey to come to understand these things. Why do we believe them? Not because of a gentleman named John Calvin, but because these are the doctrines of Scripture. And I pray that you, as you maybe on your journey, would go to the Scriptures understanding these are things found here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a time. We ask that, Lord Jesus, you'd be glorified that our heads and hearts would affirm your great supremacy, your majesty, your sovereignty. And these things you've not hidden from us. They're clear in Scripture. You did not reveal them so that we would fight over these things. These are truths you wanted us to know so that all the glory for our salvation would rightly go to you. As Romans 11.36 says, it's from you, to you, for you, all things. That's why you get all the glory. Father, we thank you that you are the God who rules and reigns. Reveal yourself to us in the scriptures that we would not simply be those that delight in true doctrine, as wonderful that is, but that we would more clearly know the true God 
of these doctrines, who's revealed them for our edification. You wanted us to know these things. That's why they are so prominent in Scripture. We thank you. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.